I'm Hemant Mehta. This is Jessica Wimke. And you're listening to the podcast for FriendlyAtheist.com. We're joined today by Dan Errol, who has written articles about religion, science, and politics for websites like Salon, Alternet, and the Huffington Post. His first book, called Parenting Without God, was released in August. Dan, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me on. So I'd actually like to kick off. Um, I feel like I've we've spoken to another author who's written a book about parenting without God. Why is that? You know, you're talking to two people without kids here. What is it about being a parent that makes people need feel like they need a guide or non God guide? I think a lot of it stems from like the society that you're in. So like you're engulfed in like this Christian society or even. In different parts of the U.S., even you could be in more like a Muslim culture, et cetera, et cetera, and you tend to feel lost on certain aspects of how do I teach my kid to interact with kids of of other faiths that may want to tell them, well, you're going to hell for this, or you know, they're going to come home with these questions about like, am I going to hell because I don't believe in Allah or I don't believe in in this God, and it's hard. It can be tricky to navigate that, and I think. Uh, you know, I'm not the only one who's who's tried to tackle this subject, but uh, I think it's an important subject that people need to address and figure out exactly how to raise kids who are bright thinkers who don't necessarily grow up thinking how we do, but uh, have learned how to think so that they grow up to be the best person they can be. I imagine that teaching a kid, you know, not to fear hell or to talk to them about some basic questions. Like Jessica and I could probably do that now. If you asked us what advice would you have, you know, to raise some kids Mm -hmm. uh, in a secular way, we could totally come up with that. Super experts. Oh, yeah, totally. (laughs) Well, I'm wondering, you actually have kids. And what have you learned from actually having kids that maybe neither one of us would have ever imagined? Oh, that's the thing I need to teach them. Mm -hmm. Uh, it, it comes more, I think it's easy to address, uh, you know, here's how you would talk about how hell doesn't exist. But I think it's a lot different when the kid or the person asking you has a legitimate fear. And it's easy to dismiss it, but it's harder to do it when it's something that they're actually afraid of, when a simple explanation may not suffice because they go, okay, so my dad says it's fake, but they're still afraid of it. Mm-hmm. and they still want to, and then they want to know how to understand death and what happens after you die. And it becomes tricky when uh, a more static answer may not work when you give them the right answer, but then they're like, yeah, but how do we know this? How do we know that? And then it becomes a more of a uh, critical thinking process where you have to start asking them questions and kind of get them to the point where they kind of talk themselves out of being scared rather than just telling them not to be scared. Does that make sense? Yeah, I guess that's something I never thought of because, you know, for example, when I was little, my parents assured me very much that there was no monster in my closet that was going to try to eat me, but I was nonetheless scared of it, even though they were like, you you know, chill out, you're fine. (laughs) I guess I, I never thought of it that way, that even if you tell your kid, like, hey, there's no help. You're fine. They're yeah. not just going to accept that yeah, and smile and walk away. Right. I never thought of it that way. Right. Especially since we're trying to teach them also to even question what we tell them. Yeah. So if you teach them that and then you tell them something, <laughs> you can't expect them to just believe it at face value because you just told them not to believe everything you say at face value. And so uh, 
there just becomes a whole tricky road of you just created a, your own little monster that yeah. you know doesn't want to listen to anything you said. Yeah, I would actually ask you that question. Why, you know, obviously we all want to, you know, we want to make sure people question authority and, you know, make choices for the right decisions. But how can you tell a five-year-old, you know, j- everything an adult says isn't always 100% true, but then you're like, also <laughs> By the you way, have to listen eat your broccoli. <laughs> and they're like, no, question authority, rebel. Uh, it has a lot to do with uh, releasing that kind of info at certain ages. Mm-hmm. So maybe, you know, at five, you can gauge that maybe your son doesn't quite understand, or son, or, I have a son, so I always say son, but um, that your child doesn't quite grasp the idea of questioning authority. So you can't really drive that point too far home because they're unable to distinguish from, uh, you know, one person to the next and how to decide who to listen to. And so at that point, you're kind of still navigating the, I, I very much advocate to never say because I said so, but you're sort of in that realm where if they want to do something and it's wrong, you kind of have to lay down that rule that this is our rule for now. And then as they get older, you can kind of expand on that and why it's a rule and have them ask questions and go back and forth to figure out if maybe you're wrong about maybe a guideline you've set for your child. If they're questioning back, you know, why have you told me I can't stay out this late? Uh, X, Y, and Z, and then you guys have a dialogue and realize, well, maybe they are more mature than you thought and can stay out later. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it goes into all different aspects of life, but it's a lot to do with gauging where your child is based on age and, you know, their own intellect. Mm-hmm. You come from a religious family yourself, right? Were you? Uh, I read you were raised as a Pentecostal. Yes, I sure was. I went to Christian school for quite a few years and uh, grew up in the church. How did you make the change from all of that to completely, you know, doing the 180? Uh, it kind of happened. I, you know, I, I don't have one of those really awesome, you know, I woke up one day and boom, I was an atheist or was not, not one big catastrophic event. Mm. But I started questioning things uh, in my, I would say right around freshman year of high school, I really started to start questioning my parents' religious beliefs and how could they be true if there was, this kind of suffering. And I didn't at that point think to reject uh, a God of any kind. I just thought maybe there was a different uh, religion out there that was meant for me. And I started exploring religions and through that led myself eventually to realizing that, well, they can't all be right, Mm -hmm. but they can very much all be wrong. And through this whole journey, one day I just was like, you know what? I think they're all wrong. And then kind of just from there, just gradually fell into place that I just didn't believe anymore. We sh- we share a very similar journey in that regard. How did your parents take that? Did you tell them when it happened? Uh, yeah, I, I was pretty upfront about it. Um, I never really hid it from them, and they were accepting. Uh, my dad didn't seem to care at all. Uh, and I think <laughs> later, uh, just a few years ago, he very much openly said, I'm an atheist as well. Right. And so I think for him, hearing it from me was just more like him saying, oh, well, duh. Um <laughs> But he kind of let my mom, who was very religious, kind of go down that path. She worked for the church and things like that. So it was just kind of part of our life. And my dad never really bothered to say, like, oh, what if this is wrong? He just he grew up Catholic, so it was just natural for him, I think. Mm-hmm. And my mom was just, I mean, she's super supportive. She still claims to be religious. Uh, I don't really think she goes to church or anything like that, but... She, you know, when my book came out, she was online bragging about her son, the author, showing the book. Nice. She shares my articles all the time. She's super proud of, of what I've done and has no quarrel or 
or a problem, you know, talking about it with other people. She doesn't worry about like, you know, church friends rejecting her for what her son does. So I have, I'm, I'm lucky in the fact that I have very, very supportive parents. Yeah, that's actually kind of a nice story to hear. I feel like we hear a lot of <laughs> yeah. stories of, I haven't talked to my parents in 30 years yeah. or things like that. Um, so obviously you're not going to send your own your own son to any, co- any sort of religious uh, school for obvious reasons. But do, how do you feel about the fact that you went to a Christian school? Do you feel like you've lost out on some education or that you kind of learned something that's valuable to you? A little of both because I feel like it probably set me back a little bit as far as understanding certain things like science, um, where when I, I mean, going, even going into high school, when I went to a a public school, I was uh, still had that idea in my head that the earth was created in six days and that, uh, dinosaurs and humans most likely coexisted. And it's because when I went to a Christian school, when we would watch a science video, they would fast forward through uh, parts (laughs) of the videos. No way. Or they would stop them to explain to us why it's wrong. Like, I wasn't taught that evolution uh, was a lie. I was taught that it was something that was thought to be true and then proven false later. Really? So it was kind of taught to me as something that was discarded. So it was never even like, there's people that believe in this uh, and they're crazy. It was, you know, oh, people thought this was true for a long time, but it's a discarded idea. No one believes in it anymore. That's so an that's interesting the, approach. Like, the world view I had which is really strange. Um, but now I use it. So I, I can look back and think about how I was taught and use that when I'm writing or, or talking. And so it benefits me now, but then, I mean, when I went to high school, I was really behind when it came to things like science. I just had a very lacking understanding of what was going on in the world around me. Do you think that gives you a special insight when you write things about, say, Ken Ham and the Creation Museum? Because you've been there. You, you I mean, I'm sorry, uh, You've you've been in that position where you were taught those ideas. So, do you have any special take on it because of that? I think it helps. Um, you know, because I didn't get really engulfed in the fact that, like, it wasn't something I obsessed about. I just accepted it and moved on. So it wasn't like I was sitting there thinking, like, "Oh, creation is this true, and I need to focus on that." Just because I wasn't taught that there was an opposing view, I was never really taught to, to argue about it. So that kind of came later. So I don't think it really helped, but it helps me understand what they think at least. So like I can kind of understand how they're taught and then I can kind of tackle it in that, in that sense. But I wasn't, I don't really have the, I I don't have the ability to counter argue as if I was someone raised in that uh, situation. Let's, let's change gears for just a second here. Uh, Let's talk about your other writing for a second. Because you've written for so many different web publications, and we mentioned a few up front, but Salon, Alternate, Huffington Post, is when you know you are going to write in a piece for one of those sites uh, versus even your own blog, do, do you change how you are writing the piece, and how does it change depending on which audience you're writing for? Uh, yeah, I very much do, and it depends on if how much I know opinion they'll let slide. So when I'm writing for alternate, they tend to uh, be really okay with me being very opinionated. As long as I kind of cite the news source and then deconstruct it, they're totally fine with that. Um, someone like Salon, they want a little bit less. They'll still let me do it, but uh, it has to be a bit more science-based with them. So it depends on, you know, I, I will pitch 
what's right to the right place too. Like alternate, it's atheism and religion. Salon, I know they want science and uh, like you know they love like anti-vaccine uh, debunking and things like that. And so yeah, I do change my tone depending on who I'm pitching the story to, just because uh, I know what I can get away with. Salon and alternate are very liberal, so I know I can I can bash on conservatism and people aren't going to hate me for it on that site. Mm-hmm. So uh, you mentioned that you write about uh, anti, uh, anti-vaxxers. Do you, that's one of those things that it's so, it's so rich for fodder. There's so much going on, but do you ever feel like you're kind of repeating yourself? Like, I feel like. How many different ways are there to right. debunk? Like, no, get your kids vaccinated. The that, one argument they have. It's one sentence. That's all you got to say. Yeah. Yeah, it gets a little tedious, um, but I, I feel also it, it still stays important, even if I am repeating myself, mm-hmm. because every time a new article goes viral that says something bad about vaccines, I feel like there's always going to be that new group of people that see it mm-hmm. that may have ignored previous ones. So even if I do have to repeat myself a bit, and some people might read it and say, oh, he's already said this, I'm not looking to to get to them because they already think that way. I'm looking to grab that person that just happened to see the newest article on Natural News that their friend posted and think that might be true. And then hopefully they see mine and say, oh, wait, like maybe I don't know what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, yeah, you are repeating yourself, but I think if you can save one kid from getting a vaccine-preventable disease, then it was worth it. This is uh, a little tangent to that story, but last night on television I was watching Shark Tank, and it was an episode where a guy came in and he pitched his invention of what looked like a wristwatch, but it was supposed to impart negative ion energy for you. Sure. And, you know, total pseudoscience. And Mark Cuban, one of the panelists, said that right up front. He's like, I don't want any part of this because it's a scam. And all the rest of the sharks soon followed. They all, I mean, half of them were just making fun of this guy. Uh-huh. And the rest of them were like, we're not interested because you can't back this up. But the funny thing is, as soon as th- I was like, I remember that episode because I remember when it originally aired a couple years ago, mm-hmm. I wrote a piece about like, oh, that's really cool to see on uh, a TV show that all these panelists called him out on his bullshit. Yeah. Yeah. And the funny thing is, as he- that episode was airing, as that clip was airing the other night, I could see that traffic on my website for that <sighs> one post Really? was going up a little bit because people were saying, oh, what is this watch? What is-? And they were coming on to my article yeah. where I said, yeah, it is BS. Uh-huh. And I think, uh, Dan, I've had that same experience too then where, yeah, it's okay if you rewrite the same stuff over and over because it does reach a different audience right. all the time. Well, I mean, you're questionable taste in TV notwithstanding. <laughs> it's great to see that like on TV there are people who are promoting science Every in, now, in the way. most unusual places, and too. Like, I wasn't watching Mythbusters. I was watching, you know, a show that's ostensibly not about science. Right. Yeah, that's pretty reassuring, I guess. Right? Yeah. Uh, Dan, what is your media diet? Like, uh, because you're so invested in writing about religion and science and uh, politics, what do you read to inform yourself? What do you listen to? What do you watch? No, very depressing stuff. <laughs> <laughs> uh so I do a mix. Uh, I have a, probably an equal parts of, of liberal or, or left-wing media with a lot of science sites. So, you know, uh, Nature and Scientific American, because I like to, or Scientific American, I, I like to watch the good news kind of flow in and uh, cause I can find stories in there. But then, you know, I also follow things like the Washington Times. Uh, I mean, surprise, surprise, I follow Ken Han's blog 
like glue. Um, <laughs> me and Ken Ham have a special relationship. And uh, Ken Ham has a I special thought... relationship with everybody. <laughs> also, reality. But uh, yeah, so I, you know, I follow. I try to follow both sides, um, and then I try to read a story, and then I try to look for that story inside of it. Uh, I try. To, I, I don't like to completely just reinvent the news and say, "Oh, look, you know." Ted Cruz did something dumb and then just rewrite that Ted Cruz did something dumb. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's fun just because it is nice to just vent once in a while and make fun of, you know, really stupid people that say really stupid things. But uh, I like to look for that little piece in there where they say something that I'm like, why didn't they expand on that? And then I try to expand on it. But yeah, my media diet is about 50-50 where I try to read a lot of right-wing stuff and then a lot of left-wing stuff and just try to dissect what I can out of it. But uh, the right-wing stuff will really keep you up at night. <laughs> what I think what's interesting is I think we all are familiar with like right wing nonsense that usually revolves around science education and things like that. But like the left is making a strong showing in the craziness in terms of like the anti vaccinations and the, you know, chemicals are a bad thing. What what is going on that people are getting so anti science on both sides of the aisle? Not you know, that's a that's a good one. I just wrote an article, uh, I think, last week, the week before about that, because uh, I got the chance to interview Neil deGrasse Tyson a couple weeks ago. Ooh. And <laughs> I, I feel the same. I let in. <laughs> I let into, I said uh, to him something along the lines of, there's a lot of science denial coming from the right in U.S. politics. And he stopped me right there. Mm -hmm. And he went on for about 15 minutes about left-wing science denial. Yeah. And he went into, you know, he just got into that controversy over GMOs. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he talked about anti-vaccine. And, you know, we place a lot of uh, uh, science denial on the right. And there is a lot there. I mean, they deny, a lot of them deny evolution. They really deny climate change. But he made the good point that when the right is in charge, they spend more on science than anybody else. They just spend it on different science. They you know, military research and things like that. Gun um, but it is science that, that he argued. And he's taken a pretty strong uh, anti-political thing, that he's he's an advocate of science no matter where it's coming from. He doesn't right. care really which party's doing it. Mm -hmm. Exactly, yeah. He, re he reiterated that uh, quite a few times. Oh, I, tried to push, I tried to push the left out of him because I know it's there. But he's yeah. uh, he's too well he's too well trained. <laughs> <laughs> he's heard these arguments before, uh, having written this stuff for a while, and and I, I wonder the same thing myself sometimes. Do you see a change happening? You know, when you write about issues like creationism, uh, right wing politics, something like that, do you see it getting better, or do you just think all of us are just we're all noise? None of it's helping. Do you ever get that pessimistic? Once in a while I do, but I think if I really stop and look at it, I think it is getting better because I kind of look at the tactics that are being used. So when you watch, you know, Ken Ham or any creationist organization in any state, they're trying to get sneakier and dirtier to sneak their, uh, like, you know, intelligent design or creationism into the classroom. They have to now kind of disguise what they're doing even more than they have before. Mm -hmm. And I think the more that we make them have to do that, the harder it gets for them because we keep calling them out for it because we're tracking them that closely. And when I see that happening, it makes me feel better because that means that they can't be open about what they're doing because the public's not on our side anymore. Yeah. Well, and that kind of started and with... They... Sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, and if they, if they have to go to those tactics to that extent, 
then I think that shows that, that we're winning more than sometimes we feel like we are. Mm-hmm. What I was going to say is that kind of started even as far back as, you know, creation. It used to be creationism, then it became intelligent design, and then, like, people... Now we're teaching the controversy. Ugh, I hate when people say that. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, so, you know, sometimes I do get very pessimistic. And, like, you know, I see the upcoming elections where it looks like the right's going to, you know, the Republicans are going to take a big majority and take back the, the House and the Senate. But at the same time, I have to remember that we still have a Democratic president, which means that... Even if nothing's going to get done, no bad stuff can really get pushed through because he can stop it. Mm-hmm. And it looks like we're probably going to keep that cycle going of Democratic presidents because the right's not putting up very good candidates. Mm-hmm. And so even if things do get pessimistic in the sense that we're not getting anywhere, I think as long as they're not doing massive damage, quote unquote, because there's still damage they can do by not passing laws, but you know things can't get terribly worse. If we lose it all, you know, good night, we're in trouble, but um, we haven't gotten to that point yet. Let me ask you about that. Uh, yes, the, it doesn't look like Republicans have a formidable uh, candidate for 2016 as we speak right now, but it seems to me like the people who are even being considered as candidates are so far to the right that they would never win over the mainstream. From a purely strategic point of view, they have to know that. And I wonder, why does it seem uh, why does it seem so hard to find a candidate who is Republican, but who actually might be able to reach out? I, I'm The first name that comes to mind is someone like John Huntsman, mm-hmm. who didn't have yeah. a showing the last time around, probably because of that. He was too liberal for the GOP. Uh, why, even from a strategic perspective, can they not get a better candidate? I don't know if it's that they cannot, but I think, I think general consensus is that no one that they have that's a, a big name right now can beat Hillary Clinton. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think there's little doubt Hillary's going to run. And if she runs, I, I think she's going to win. And I think she's going to win by a pretty big amount. I mean, the, the Clintons are, you know, given even the controversy around Bill, they're still pretty well-liked. She's pretty well-liked, even with the Benghazi stuff that the right's trying to throw at her. And... I think they're too afraid. If they put up too great of a candidate and then they get squashed, then they've kind of wasted that candidate. Mm. So I think if they put the craziest people forward now, after after Clinton, if they put someone a bit more moderate, they're going to look amazing. I, I, so I don't disagree with you. Huge. I don't disagree with you one bit. I think uh, one thing that I just don't understand from a political perspective is I don't think they're going to do that. I think they're going to nominate someone who seems just really ridiculously to the right. And what I really don't get about it is I know how that person may appeal to the base. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm sure any candidate they put up will appeal to their base. But if you're trying to win over people in the middle— you have to imagine that women's rights, women's issues are going to be then a major source of uh, discussion mm-hmm. in the election. And I can't imagine any of these guys that they would get to run would do a good job of discussing those things. Like, they're not going to win over those independents. And I just don't understand if you're a Republican strategist, like, you have to be going crazy right now. Oh, they have to be pulling their hair out because that. The party did get in trouble by pushing themselves too far right. Mm-hmm. And I think to, an, to a degree, they're actually not sure how to come back to the left because when you push yourself that far, you suddenly can't backtrack on all the things that got you there. 
you have to kind of slowly do it. And I think they, they have to first become unafraid of the Tea Party. And right now they're petrified of the Tea Party. So when the Tea Party tells them to go for the right, instead of fighting it, to go for the right so they can get reelected. Mm-hmm. And I think they're kind of digging themselves in a hole. And I don't know how, I, I don't really want them to get out of it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how they're going to get out of it. But, uh, I mean, we do need some more moderates on their side that can can stop the whole craziness of let's just deny all, you know, global warming. Let's, you know, let's just go, you know, full free market. Let's, you know, forget minimum wage. We can't let that happen because they're just going to keep, you know, us at a stalemate like they are. Mm-hmm. And so we do need more moderates to come in. But from a, from their point of view, I don't know how you do that. You're going to have to start replacing everybody in there with a the moderate and that's going to be hard to do when you set a lot of your core base up to think, look how far right we can go. Mm-hmm. Now let's go left a little bit. Do you think they're still going to be fighting the gay marriage, marriage equality issue by then? I mean, it's still like more than a year away from really campaigning, but are they still going to be fighting that battle? Uh, I think that they're going to be a little bit more strategic about it. I think they're going to fight it in the, in the states that uh, they need to. But I don't think that they're going to be going to a a purple state that maybe has, you know, openly supported it and argue that. I think they might go there and talk about something else like employment or, you know, Iraq or something like that where they can kind of try to go after the independence in that sense. I think that they're going to try to do it state by state where before they were a bit more, you know, let's make this constitutional. I think they know that fight's over. Mm-hmm. And I think now they realize that it's going to be a state issue and that they need to just try to focus on winning those purple states uh, using whatever tactic that state cares about the most. All right. Well, Dan, thank you so much for joining us. For everyone listening, Dan's book is called Parenting Without God, and we will post a link to that on our website. Uh, Dan, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me on. That was a pleasure. Thanks, Dan. You've been listening to the podcast for FriendlyAtheist.com. This episode was taped at Cinnamon Sound Studios in Aurora, Illinois. The music was composed by Brad Chagdis. If you like what you're hearing, please consider making a contribution at Patreon.com slash Hemant. That's He-Man-T. We appreciate your support. I'm Hemant Mehta. And I'm Jessica Blimke. We hope you'll join us next time.